1: The COVID-19 pandemic pulled 8 million Americans into poverty, millions who lost jobs that kept them one paycheck away from becoming destitute, and many, like those who were formerly middle-income, who now patronize food banks where they used to donate food. There have always been poor people, but the pandemic has exposed some of the realities and conditions of poverty, which are little seen and often misunderstood. Reverend Dr. William Barber, of the new Poor People's Campaign.
3: There's not a county in this country where you can work a minimum wage job and afford a basic two-bedroom house,
1: not one county. There's four million people that get up every morning in this country who can buy unleaded gas and can't buy unleaded water. In the wake of the pandemic, who is poor now? And what are the persistent myths about impoverished Americans which shape public attitudes and undermine potential policy solutions? Later in the show during this Women's History Month a local community center celebrates a special anniversary 50 years of the Cambridge Women's Center
0: Our demands the demands of the march I think are important to keep in context because 50 years later these demands are still have still not been met
1: but first, joining me remotely, Mark Rank, professor at Washington University in St. Louis and lead author of Poorly Understood, What America Gets Wrong About Poverty. Hello, Mark. Hi, Kelly. Also with me, Peter Edelman, faculty director of the Center on Poverty and Inequality at Georgetown University and author of Not a Crime to be Poor, The Criminalization of Poverty in America. Hello, Peter. Hello to you. And Carolyn Cote, licensed clinical social worker and family mobility mentor at Economic Mobility Pathways, Empath, in Boston. Welcome, Caroline. Hello, Callie. All right. I'm going to start with you, Mark, because Poorly Understood, your book really just gets right down to the fact that we just really have no clue about poverty and who is in poverty. So I want to start with the poverty line or the index. We hear that over and over again. People fall below the line. Give me the the best example you have of where the line is now and then is that realistic for where we are in 2021?
2: Yeah, that's a that's a great place to start. So, um the way that poverty is uh, officially measured in this country is to draw a line in terms of income and if you fall below that line in terms of your household income for the year, you're counted as in poverty. If you're above that line, you're not in poverty. So, For last year, the poverty line for a family of three was around $20,000. So families that earn less than that were counted as in poverty. And as your listeners probably are aware, trying to survive on less than $20,000 a year is really, really tight. So it's a very conservative measure. And the other thing that I would say about this measure is that that represents poverty at its most affluent level. It turns out that about 45% of Americans fall below one-half the official poverty line. So instead of being below $20,000 for a family of three, we're talking about a lot of people who are below $10,000 for a family of three.
1: What was the impact of COVID? Because we know about lost jobs. We know about uh, low-wage workers being kicked off of uh, uh, many jobs that were holding them together. What happened with COVID and and that index that you just described?
2: Yeah, it it certainly has had a, a really significant effect on throwing more people into poverty. I think the estimate is something like 8 million more people were thrown into poverty as a result of the pandemic. And the reason is what you were just saying is that there are so many Americans that are living paycheck to paycheck. Um, There was a study done every year by the Federal Reserve Bank and they found that about 37% of Americans would not have $400 to cover an emergency. So when the pandemic hit, many of those families were, were thrown into poverty.
1: So, Caroline, I want to go to you just following up, trying to get a sense of who is poor and what it looks like. You're working with poor people all the time. Part of your job as this mobility mentor is to really help people try to stabilize and get on their feet. Give us a sense of, you know, a typical client you would have.
3: A typical client is a single mother with multiple children living in low income housing or a voucher based housing unit. And, you know, many of our families are either have a GED or a high school diploma and really want to work more on their education, obtain a career that they would like to pursue. And I think, you know, many times we don't think of the whole family. You know, at Empath, we do focus on mobility mentoring in which they are participants. They make the approach and they make their goals. And we're really fully participant driven.
1: So they're trying to get on the other side of that poverty index. But, you know, they're faced with a lot of challenges when when you start to work with them.
3: Absolutely, Kelly, absolutely. There are so many systemic barriers that these families face if we talk about things such as housing barriers, work barriers, childcare barriers, and all of those have just been really, really strongly impacted even furthermore by
1: this pandemic. So, Mark Rank, I want to go back to you before and get both you and Peter to respond to this, because uh, one of the uh, predominant myths that you articulate in your book is that There's something that I realize that a lot of people hold on to is that poverty happens to other people. So couple that with what I thought was a very shocking statement was that in your adult life or in the adult life of many Americans uh, will spend at least one year below the poverty line, as you have described. So I'd like to get you to respond to the happens to other people to begin with.
2: Yeah, that's a really prevalent myth is the idea that um, poverty is an issue of them, not an issue of us, that poverty affects other folks, but it's not going to affect me. And I've been doing over a number of years this life course work, and it is pretty shocking. So it turns out that between the ages of 20 and 75, approximately 60% of Americans at some point will spend at least a year below the official poverty line, and three-quarters of Americans will spend at least one year in poverty or near poverty. So um, this isn't something that affects a small minority of Americans. And the reason for that is, if you think about it, over the period of 20 or 30 or 40 years, things happen to people that they didn't anticipate. Um, People lose a job, a family splits up, somebody gets sick. All of those things have the potential to throw people into poverty. And when those things happen, we really don't have much protection in this country from folks falling into poverty. Basically, what we do is we wind up punishing people who uh, fall into poverty rather than preventing poverty in the first place. So I think that that's a, a huge myth out there, that poverty is an issue of them but not an issue of us.
1: Now, Peter, there are reasons for that that you articulate because, as you make clear, poverty is usually looked through a lens of race, and that is one of the reasons that people tend to think, well, that's them, that's that's not me. Can you speak to that?
4: Absolutely. We can't talk about uh, poverty uh, in the United States if we don't talk about race. Uh, and uh, it's important to understand that you have... A, Uh, about uh, Uh, 13.2 African-American, that's that's the population, but uh, you have about uh, 23.8 of those who are poor. So you can just, if you're talking about numbers, but it's also very important to understand that uh, the uh, white uh, population about uh, 41.6, the last number uh, of those who are poor, are white. And we don't talk about that.
1: So let me just emphasize that. Most of the people in America who are poor are white. That's right.
4: Uh, and and uh, they're less than their population, uh, which is higher than that. But 41.6 of those who are poor are white. And the country generally thinks about people of color. African American, Latino, Native American. And that in turn uh, says, oh, well, not me because I'm a white person. Uh, and all those programs that they have, they're, they're for people black and that's bad thing and they're lazy people. Uh, and so uh, it, the, the question uh, of color about all this is extremely important in both directions, both uh, making understanding that race is so uh, important in our country still, unfortunately, but also these issues that we've been talking about here are also hitting white people. Uh, And yet the politics uh, of that doesn't uh, make uh, that as an important thing for people in our country and the decision that we would make. We're uh, on women with children uh, who are by themselves, uh, they're single moms, their level uh, of, of being in poverty is 40 percent, uh, and that's black and white, just about the same numbers. So women with children, a disability, uh, more uh, disability than than the, the regular numbers. Inner city, uh, of course, more, more. Uh, rural. So we have to take apart every one of these things as to why they're particulars. Uh, of their uh, issues of poverty.
1: Peter, let me follow up with you, because your book really focuses on uh, the criminalization of poverty. And I'm wondering if COVID and its heavy impact on driving a lot of people into poverty will begin to change some public attitudes. And by that I mean, we can recall not long ago uh, that opioid use or addiction was thought of as those are the junkies, those are the people, you know, that I would never be that. And that changed as more people began to have people in their families uh, become hooked on opiates. And so now, you know, people are understanding it. It's not perfect yet, but understanding it is that it's an illness as you would have any other kind of physical illness. So my question to you, Peter, can the criminalization of poverty change because of the impact of COVID?
4: Well, I hope so, in in a number of places in the country where somebody is uh, stuck uh, into a jail uh, for a misdemeanor uh, and the money bail that is thrown at them, they can't pay it. And uh, all kinds of things that make it even worse because uh, if they're in rather than out, things happen to the family, to the job, all kinds of things. Uh, And uh, we're getting some opening up to understand that that we don't need to do that 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 uh if there's a misdemeanor, and of course some of those things shouldn't shouldn't be uh uh crimes at all, but those that are and these they should be smaller than the sentence, but if it's something they did, uh we know from a lot of lot of research that they'll come to the court. They don't have to be put in the jail, it costs a lot of money, it ruins people's life. And uh, we're seeing in D.C. where I live right now, uh, the, they're uh, letting people out on misdemeanors uh, while waiting uh, to go to court. And, and, of course, people go to court. Uh, they don't, you don't have to lock them up. So I'm hoping from all of this that we will learn some things and we'll keep on knowing them uh, after the, the terrible uh, virus goes away.
1: If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me is Mark Rank, author of Poorly Understood and professor at Washington University in St. Louis, Peter Edelman, director of Georgetown Center on Poverty and Inequality, and Carolyn Cote, social worker and family mobility mentor at Empath Boston. We're discussing persistent myths about the poor and why it matters. Uh, Carolyn, I'm curious if you have seen a change in public attitude about the people that you work with because of COVID, because, you know, many more people, as as Mark has said, uh could easily be in their position, the your clients.
3: Yeah, Callie. I, I have to say, you know, I, I can't say in the test to that I've seen a huge change. However, I'm hopeful that there will be, you know, in the in the coming months, coming years, when people really start to have this idea thinking in that this isn't something that is only for the destitute, right? Like the word that you mentioned earlier, and that it can affect so many people so, so, so quickly. It can be a matter of one thing, just like this pandemic, that um, really
1: affects families. So I'm thinking what has often happened is when a societal impact happens to children, you can often get a little bit more response. And as we're speaking, the House is considering The American Rescue Plan, they're supposed to pass it. And part of what's in that plan is a one-year, just want to be clear, one-year help for children who are in poverty. First, let's take a listen to, just so people understand, what we're talking about when we talk about kids in poverty. This is uh, Kyla. This is from a Frontline documentary about kids in poverty. And she's 14 years old, describing living in poverty with her mother and sister.
3: I would say we were a poor family because we really don't have a lot of money at all. We've been homeless basically for a year or something like that. We had moved into an apartment and we couldn't afford it, so we had to move out. So we've just been living with people. We're just in one room and it's three of us.
1: So these are the kinds of children that can be helped, they and their families, by this piece of legislation, temporary though it may be, Mark Rank, as the author of "Poorly Understood, your book. What do you think about that? Can this be as impactful as one would hope? No,
2: I think so. And I know that documentary very well, and and the kids in that documentary. It's very powerful. Um, Absolutely. I mean, the the idea of a child allowance, um, which is what is kind of being proposed here, can definitely have an effect on reducing poverty amongst children. And this is an idea that has been around for decades in uh, European countries that have had this. But let me put a little different twist on this, which is What is the impact of not doing anything in Mm -hmm. terms of reducing childhood poverty? And I did a study a couple of years ago. We uh, estimated what the economic cost of childhood poverty is to the United States on an annual basis. And we know that childhood poverty is associated with greater health care costs. We know it's associated with less economic productivity when children become adults. And we know it's associated with higher criminal justice costs. So we factored all those in. And we came up with a conservative estimate that childhood poverty costs the United States roughly $1 trillion a year. To put that into perspective, that was about 28% of the entire federal budget. So the issue here is not are we paying or not. We're paying for poverty, childhood poverty on the back end of the problem, rather than on the front end of the problem. And it's always more expensive to pay for a problem on the back end. The other thing that we show is that for every dollar we would spend reducing childhood poverty, we save seven to $12 down the road in averting those costs. So not only is addressing childhood poverty the right thing to do,
1: but it's also economically the smart thing to do. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me is Mark Rank, author of Poorly Understood and professor at Washington University in St. Louis, Peter Edelman, director of Georgetown Center on Poverty and Inequality, and Carolyn Cote, social worker and family mobility mentor at Empath Boston. We're discussing persistent myths about the poor and why it matters. Here's a big one. We have a safety net people listening to this conversation will say. We got, we've got, we got the SNAP, formerly food stamps. We have some welfare. We have Section 8 housing. Come on. You know, we're spending millions and millions of dollars to help people who need this. We just don't think that they are either paying attention or want to be helped, Peter Edelman.
4: Well, it's uh, not what we're doing. <laughs> no, I mean, in 1996, uh, uh, the so-called TANF became welfare in this country. Uh, which is cash assistance. And uh, at the time, Clinton was president. There were about 13 million people who were getting welfare. I think that's too many because there were not enough help for people to get uh, jobs. But now it's under 3 million people in the whole country, less than 1%. So if somebody thinks that there's welfare uh, out there, they just need to take another look at it. All we have at the very bottom for 6 million people is SNAP, is food stamps, and there is no welfare because it's come down to fewer than 3 million people in the whole country. So anybody that tells you uses the word welfare in the sense of cash assistance, it doesn't exist anymore, and we really need to get into that. And of course, that's that's one of the reasons why now the discussion about child uh, allowance that we were talking a few minutes ago, the child tax credit, will end up, uh, if we can get it all the way through in permanent, uh, we'll have a far, far better uh, way of going at that. And, and we'll actually get rid of about 40% of uh, children and their family out of poverty if we can go through uh, the one year that we are getting in this great Uh, Law uh, right now. So that uh, really people do not understand that Uh, we're we're looking at the need, the definite need for minimum wage. And it it got knocked off uh, in the last couple of of weeks. And and, uh, that hasn't been uh, raised for years and years. So the, the facts are that they're uh, for low-income people, and too many of them are stuck. And, and those that are going to get uh, out, uh, they, they will get out, uh, perhaps, but uh, for a long period of time where they're in a terrible situation, uh, as we talked about in, in the discussion uh, earlier. No, we don't have a decent safety net at all in the United States.
1: Just to uh, underscore that, in 2007, several legislators in the Congress decided to take up the food stamp challenge. Uh, U.S. Representative Jim McGovern of Massachusetts was one, and that meant he would eat, he and his family, on a food stamp budget, now called SNAP, for one week. Here's what he said about that experience.
2: My wife Lisa and I have gained valuable insights from our experience on a very tight budget. We have much more sympathy over how the lack of energy and the hard choices on how to stretch the budget and put food on the table might also stress a marriage. We can imagine the worry and pain of parents if we had to feed our children on this kind of budget. These are just a few of our reflections over the past week.
1: Now that, of course, Caroline, was just so that people would understand, since it's a them and an us thing, as Mark Rank has said earlier, you know, hey, okay, it's us. And um, and we tried it and it doesn't work. So this is something that you're dealing with with your clients all the time. They're trying to balance all of this while pulling themselves up by, as you say, bootstraps they do not have.
3: Yeah, Callie, exactly. You know, this perception and it is a misperception at that, that um, families can just pull themselves up by the bootstrap, you know, and have this sort of American dream. It's unattainable. It is unattainable at this point, the amount of barriers, you know, you heard um, him, the recording um, where they spoke about SNAP, you know, and um, it, it really is unattainable at this point. There are one in eight children living in Massachusetts right now at the federal poverty level, one in eight. And there are one in four children in Massachusetts living in a low income family right now. And so those percentages to me are are not great ones. You know, poverty is scarcity. And so we need to minimize that scarcity. And so that families can free up space in their mind to further their executive functioning. That is one of the many things poverty impacts executive functioning skills. And if families don't have that, they're not able to get ahead. And so we really need to minimize that scarcity that they're facing.
1: So Mark Rank, in your book, Poorly Understood, What America Gets Wrong About Poverty, you know, you offer some policy solutions. Many of them are some things that we've heard before. What makes you think, or is this a moment, perhaps, because of COVID, democratizing poverty in some way? Can people start to hear it differently now, the the solutions that you would offer? And you might mention some of those yeah i
2: think we are at a time where people might shift their thinking and the thing that we should do is rather than think about the causes of poverty as individual blame which is what we've done for years and years and years it's really a structural failing it's a structural failing in that there aren't enough jobs that pay a decent wage we don't have programs in place that protect people Um, And those are the kinds of things that we need to uh, really address poverty. I like to use the analogy of uh, musical chairs and Um, what we do so often is we focus on who loses out at that game rather than the fact that the game is set up such that there will be losers in the first place. And what we need to do is provide more chairs for the people playing that game. And so that would include things like, yes, getting the minimum wage up to a livable wage, having jobs that provide the kind of benefits that folks need, such as health care, um, having programs in place that protect people, um, providing accessible and affordable childcare These are all things that many other countries provide, but the United States doesn't. We have what's what's often called a reluctant welfare state. We're very reluctant to provide those benefits. But if we're ever going to address poverty, we need to think of it as a structural failing, which I think this pandemic is, is bringing to the fore, and deal with it on that level, rather than always focusing on who loses out at the game.
1: So do you think that public attitudes can change because of COVID? I think it's definitely possible because, you know, it's like when, when have we seen
2: big changes in policy? We saw changes in the 1930s as a result of the Great Depression. We saw changes in the 1960s because of the unrest that was going on. And here we have a situation where there seems to be a structural problem. And so, you know, the fact that we're even talking about child allowances, which is a, a version, a, a subset of the of the universal basic income idea. I mean, a couple of years ago, this would would be unheard of. And today we're talking about this. So I actually am guardedly optimistic that I think in the next few years we're going to see some real progress on addressing the issues of poverty and addressing the issues of inequality.
1: If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me is Mark Rank, author of Poorly Understood and professor at Washington University in St. Louis, Peter Edelman, director of Georgetown Center on Poverty and Inequality, and Carolyn Cote, social worker and family mobility mentor at Empath Boston. We're discussing persistent myths about the poor and why it matters. Caroline, what one thing would you? If you could just make things happen, you would put in place that would be significant in helping your clients move up to that next rung or even see the rung from where they are.
3: I'd have to say, you know, I I was reading an article recently, and it was a program that had provided universal basic income to its clients, And it was a $500 stipend monthly. And the research from that program showed that it worked. And one of the reasons why it worked was, again, removing that scarcity to the point that families can actually focus on the things that they want or need to attain, whether it be work or it's childcare, or it's education. They need to be able to think in that way and to operate and to function. But again, you know, that scarcity just really, really is is so, so immensely, immensely limiting. And so mm-hmm. I really think, you know, in a perfect world, that universal basic income um, would be instated, you know, and, and I know that that's somewhere that we're not at yet, but I'm hopeful that we could be there um, in the next in next
1: few years. Peter Edelman, the same question to you. What one thing would you put in place that could dramatically improve the situation for poor people?
3: You know, uh,
4: I've been talking about this for years and years and years, and that's one question I never answer because there's so many things that we need to do. But actually, right now, we have something that is so possible, which is the child allowance, the so-called uh, child tax credit, and people at the bottom, it is just a sin. That's a small word of, of for it. We have 6 million people Whose only income is on SNAP. And when you only have that, you're on a third of the poverty level. You're at uh, having about $6,000 in relation to the 20 level that we talked about. And that's where we have to start. And then comes the jobs. There comes the education. Then comes the uh, housing and and all the other pieces that deal with race uh, in our country. That's why I always say I don't have one answer. But right now, this is one, and we've got one year that's going to be law under the president's statute that he's going to sign in just uh, the next day or so, this new law. Uh, And now we have to work to make it permanent. And this is really, really, really an opportunity.
1: If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me is Mark Rank, author of Poorly Understood, Peter Edelman, director of Georgetown's Center on Poverty and Inequality, and Carolyn Cote, social worker and family mobility mentor at Empath Boston. We're talking about how the pandemic has impacted poverty in America. Mark Rank, some people also believe that an opportunity would be the $15 minimum wage. Jen Saki, President Joe Biden's press secretary said to MSNBC recently that uh, President Biden remains committed to that, despite the Senate having rejected that part of the most recent stimulus package.
5: People have been working hard, who have been trying to just make ends meet, should not be living at the poverty level. And he believes that the minimum wage should be raised to $15 an hour. There's been lots of reports out there, but I can assure you and your viewers, there's no negotiations happening right now about lowering that threshold that the president's involved and that anyone in the administration is involved in.
1: So, Mark Rank, would that be one of your one things? Or where are you uh, with something significant that could be put in place that might make a big change?
2: That would be right up there at the top. The idea that, you know, if you and this is what President Biden has said, which I completely agree with. If you work full time in this country, you shouldn't be in poverty. And so in getting that minimum wage up to something that's more of a livable wage I think is absolutely critical. It's it's un-American that folks who are playing by the rules Working hard some of the hardest working people. I know are in poverty and yet they're not getting ahead and they're not getting ahead Because of the structural constraints that we were talking about that is there aren't enough jobs that pay a living wage And so one way to do that is to raise the minimum wage Another way to do that is through the earned income tax credit Which we've had and actually turns out to be the largest anti-poverty program in the United States But those are absolutely fundamental and so yes yeah, Yes, I think getting that wage up to $15 an hour is really essential. And in fact, most Americans support that policy. So I think that that, that's very, very important.
1: Understanding what's been said by everybody here, Mark Rank, and let me go back to the beginning of this conversation when I noted how many millions of Americans have been pulled into poverty because of COVID. Will there be bigger numbers before we can officially say the COVID pandemic is over? And will those people get out
2: yeah, so uh, yes, I think there will be bigger numbers when we see the the poverty numbers in the fall for for this past year. Those will definitely go up, but poverty is very it, it tends to be very fluid, in other words, people move in and out of poverty there 's a, a small group of folks that are in poverty for years and years, but most people move in and out of poverty so I'm quite hopeful that, you know, as we get through this pandemic and the economic consequences that it's had, um, folks will be able to do better overall. But I think the the policies that we're talking about are long-term policies that will really help to reduce poverty in the long term. And and I would say, you know, the, the smartest investment that we can make is investment in our people investment in our human capital. This makes us a more innovative and a creative society. So all of these things we're talking about, again, are not only the morally right thing to do, but they're the economically smart thing to do.
1: Caroline, what do you want anybody listening to this conversation to understand? Mark Rank's book is called Poorly Understood. What do you want them to know about the poor people that you work with? What
3: I would say I want people to know is that Poverty is not a one-size-fits-all issue. It is something that many, many people are facing, and nobody wants to live in poverty. Nobody does. The system is not built to support families that are living in poverty, and we need to have big systemic changes in order to support our people. I would also say that we need to have a whole family approach for years and years and years, we have only looked at what we have called head of households. And it, you know, in my experience and research that has been done, working with a whole family when trying to combat poverty is more beneficial
1: and last word from you, Peter Edelman. what do you want people to know about? The poor people, they think they know.
3: I think
4: the how we have said it, and I would uh, absolutely uh, say it again. Uh, people need to have jobs and good jobs because people want to work. People, uh, So many people don't get that. This is a structural problem in the country, and people really want to work. And we need to make it possible. And then everything that goes with that, we haven't talked about the health side of it. Very, very important. And of course, the education and the housing and all the other people. And, and not to forget that there are people uh, that we, with, with creating uh, the, the so-called uh, TANF law from 1996, a terrible, bolt hurting people at the very bottom, they want to work. And we need to give them that support. Uh, so it's not just one thing, but what people really want is a good job.
1: I think that's a perfect place to leave this conversation. I thank you all for joining me today.
2: Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Kelly.
1: Thank you, Kelly. Mark Rank is professor at Washington University in St. Louis and lead author of Poorly Understood, What America Gets Wrong About Poverty. Peter Edelman, faculty director of the Center on Poverty and Inequality at Georgetown University and author of Not a Crime to be Poor, the criminalization of poverty in America. And Carolyn Cote, licensed clinical social worker and family mobility mentor at Economic Mobility Pathways, Empath in Boston. Coming up from occupied space to cornerstone of the community, the Cambridge Women's Center has a storied history of offering multiple supports for local women. During this Women's History Month, the center marks its 50th year anniversary, a half-century of advocating for women. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. ¶¶ callie crossley and this is under the radar with callie crossley and now for the part of the show we call lanya that's creole for something extra it's the oldest continuing operating women's center in the u.s the cambridge women's center is marking its 50th anniversary kicking off a year-long celebration with 10 days of activities symbolizing the 10-day building takeover back in 1971 The 10-day occupation, chronicled in the documentary Left on Pearl, led to the creation of the center and a legacy of advocacy for women. Joining me remotely, Rochelle Ruthchild, one of the founders of the Cambridge Women's Center, its second president, and a producer of the documentary Left on Pearl. Welcome, Rochelle.
0: Thank you, Callie. I'm delighted to be on.
1: Delighted to have you. Judy Norris, full-time volunteer and chair of the Cambridge Women's Center Board of Trustees. Hello, Judy.
5: Hi, Kelly. Thanks so much for
1: having me. I'm glad to have you both. I want to start this way. I think it's helpful when we talk about events that took place long ago to put a little historical context on the table so people sort of get a sense of what was happening at the time. So in 1971, the public support for the Vietnam War was at an all-time low, and across the country, anti-war protesters were occupying university buildings, um, even more after the killing of four students at Kent State. The previous year.
2: What the investigators have to determine then is whether the Guard was justified in firing its weapons. University of
4: Iowa students gathered in front of Old Capitol this afternoon for a rally. I asked you to follow due process, which has been the concern of this campus now for several years. Mr. Petula,
5: why will you not pay taxes? I will not pay taxes because I can no longer, in good conscience, pay for wanton death and destruction of human beings.
4: Money and draft cards were burned. The national anthem and the American flag were made
1: a mockery. So, Rochelle, I wanted to put that in our listeners' ears just to give a sense of what the dynamic was like across the country. There was really an era of protest. And in the middle of that, because of a set of circumstances, the Women's Center was created. So let's... Go back. Talk to me about how the Women's Center creation really fit into that time of protest.
0: Well, it was the time, as you noted, of a lot of social ferment. Within Boston, also, there were a number of movements. There were student strikes. There was the takeover, actually, of the Harvard graduation in 1970 by activists from the Riverside community in Cambridge demanding affordable housing. The same graduation was also taken over by uh, anti-war protesters demanding an end to the war in Vietnam. So there was a lot of social ferment happening, and it was the beginning of women's movement activism. And again, to put things in context, this was a time when um, newspaper ads, want ads were segregated by sex. It was a time before Roe versus Wade, so abortion was illegal. It was a time when women, for the most part, uh, needed their husband's signatures, married women to get credit. So there was a lot of uh, feeling, not only of kind of general injustice, also a sense of possibility for change. And that is where the... Women's March really fit in. And I should say the Women's March took place on International Women's Day, which is a holiday that originated in the United States, even though it's the place where it's least celebrated.
1: And so continuing with that thread, here you were. Here were others like you thinking, what? Uh, had it ever at that moment come to your mind, we should have a center for women? Or were you just caught up in recognizing that some things needed to change, but you weren't quite sure at that moment how to make that happen?
0: There had been a movement within the uh, women's groups in Boston to establish a women's center, and there had been fundraising for it. So the idea of a women's center and having a space for women that would be safe Uh, and in which women could begin to figure out ways to address our needs at that point and address some of the issues that were percolating up, such as more attention to things like violence against women, the conditions of women in prison, the conditions of women with mental illness. Those kinds of issues were part of the impetus, really, to thinking about a women's center, but it had been primarily through fundraising not with the idea at the beginning, at least, of taking over a building.
1: Well, you describe the creation itself as revolutionary. Why would you use that word?
0: Well, because women don't have space of their own. I mean, there's no women's country. Women generally live in family situations, some of which are more egalitarian than others. But in many cases, women don't really have control over finances, don't have control over uh, their personal space, are very much and even more so, I would say, at that point, dominated within a family structure, a patriarchal family structure. So the idea of actually having an autonomous women's space was quite, I would say, radical, revolutionary.
1: That's my guest, Rochelle Ruthchild. She's one of the founders of the Women's Center, its second president and producer of the documentary Left on Pearl. A little bit more about uh, the history of how the center came to be before we get into what's happening now. Um, so the Left on Pearl documentary, which is fabulous, uh, really told the story of how the group of you just took over a building. Who knew? Uh, <laughs> you really, you really got into the spirit of the protest and uh, occupied some space, and then make it made it happen. I'm just gonna play a little bit from the documentary. This is Laura Whitehorn and Carolyn and Neville in the documentary Left on Pearl, talking about breaking into the Harvard-owned 888 Memorial Drive. We had to break down the, the door to the second floor, and that
5: was why there was noise from inside the building that the neighbors heard, and that, why the police came to check it out.
0: As the police were coming closer and closer into the building, the most incredible fear I have ever experienced in my life, you know, cold sweat. The cops
5: came up to the front door and they banged on the door, and we just didn't say anything. You know, it's an abandoned building. So they turned and they went away. We were so
1: relieved. All right, Rochelle, Ruthchild. So what was happening there is that a bunch of you had decided we we're going to occupy this space owned by Harvard. Um, and I should mention that when the film came out, and I think still probably now, a lot of people didn't know this history of how the center came to be. And then that was your first space, really, that you said this is going to be the center. Describe a little bit more about how after you occupied the space for as long as you did, the 10 days, what happened after that?
0: Well, we didn't expect that we would be able to hold that space. And we thought that we would be thrown out right away. But in part because the authorities at Harvard and at the, in the city didn't know who was in the building. I think partially because of gender reasons, because there were women in the building and there were children in the building, that they kind of backed off and wanted to see if they could negotiate us out of the building. We uh, went in not expecting to stay for 10 days and uh, had to go and make preparations to stay for a longer period of time, get sleeping equipment, sleeping bags, supplies, food, and as is shown in the film, the uh, authorities turned off the electricity, which we were able to reconnect. And we were able to deal with a number of the issues. We couldn't deal with the heat. The, the heat was more centrally regulated. I also just want to say uh, that our demands, the demands of the march, I think are important to keep in context. Because 50 years later, these demands are still, have still not been met free medical care, including, well, we do have Roe v. Wade, but it's under attack, abortion and birth control, economic equality, equal pay and equal work for women and men, an end to degrading images of women in the media, uh, free community-controlled child care centers, affordable housing. These demands are very, very relevant today and very timely.
1: Um, Way back when, Judy Norris, you were a mom feeling uh, like you were not anchored, really, looking for for some support and somehow made your connection to uh, these women and this center. Tell us about it.
5: Before the Women's Center was started, there was no central place for women to, to have meetings, but that place called Sergeant Pepper's Coffee House allowed us to use their basement room for meetings once a month. And I heard about that, and I went to one of those meetings the people leading the meetings were from the Bread and Roses Collective, women who came to the meeting just said, go into this room next door and talk about what's going on with you. And it was awesome. It's how the uh, consciousness-raising groups, many of them were started, I think. And I was the only mother in the room. The people had different issues, but talking to women and hearing about our lives and each other's lives and our struggles was just so huge for me. It was like a breath of fresh air. It sort of gave me a little hope. and. Um, I was really overwhelmed being a mom with two kids and not really knowing how on earth to be responsible, a person responsible for other lives, which was scaring me. And I was also um, identified as a lesbian, and that was completely bad in those Mm -hmm. days. So this all happened. So I actually went to the building takeover with my consciousness raising group. And then I heard about the meetings that we were having, were being had to organize how we were going to be a non-hierarchical it was really important to us to be non-hierarchical to have everyone's voice heard as much as we could we had like meeting somewhere i don't remember where about that before the center started and as soon as the center started i would go over there whenever my kids were in school and i was fixing broken windows because the neighborhood boys were were breaking windows and somebody had to fix them (laughs) but yeah we started out it was all volunteer there was no a hierarchy in that, I guess, we had our meetings were run by a collective called the core, core group and also staff and projects meetings so we would include other people. And we were trying to operate by consensus. So this was all how I got involved was something really mattered to me or helped me. And then I was wanting to spread the help out there.
1: Judy, one of the things that Rochelle mentioned, which I wanted to circle back to because you've been a full-time volunteer for quite some time, in addition to being chair of the Board of Trustees, is that you're still, 50 years later, trying to work to address issues that women had. And articulated 50 years ago. So describe for people who wouldn't have a clue about what happens at a women's center, what's going on there? I know it's a six day a week drop in. What's happening at the women's center?
5: Right. And except for COVID, it would be a six day drop in and many hours, 55 hours, like 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. on weekdays and 10 to 3 on Saturdays. And women can drop in. We have computer labs. We have a kitchen. Very unusual, almost unheard of, just to have a kitchen in an open, free space where people can come and cook, and especially women who are unhoused, somewhere they can't find anywhere else, and it's a great spot. People come from very different walks of life. We also have lots of support groups there, and so women will come in for a support group, and then they'll go to the kitchen, see what's in the fridge, and what's cooking, and get involved with chatting with other women. So it's very, very diverse group, and one of the things about the center I think is the most important is how women from different walks of life and different challenges, and many are survivors of child sexual abuse or domestic violence or other trauma, and people can feel like a part of a community, they can feel they belong. We have volunteers there all the time that help with all kinds of stuff, including support on the computers. And you can come and go. We don't have any intake or questions. You're considered to be a part of the center if you walk in the door. And lots of people who come get close to other women who come and to the volunteers. And because we're open all those hours, we have three volunteers on site all the time. And they're so helpful and so kind, and we can do this women's center because of the volunteers who, who also run the groups and run the helpline that we have, which is also for the same hours as the center. And the groups really range from trauma support to sewing to we have a managing during COVID group, art groups. We have right now a woman doing alterations in the backyard. Didn't ask this, but during COVID, we've tried to keep the backyard open as much as we could for on-site hours. And people to use computers when they can. And basically, we just kind of crank it out, try to be there for the community, which is what we're for, at least partly.
1: (laughs) I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Rochelle Ruthchild, one of the founders of the Cambridge Women's Center and a producer of the documentary, Left on Pearl, and Cambridge Women's Center Board Chair, Judy Norris. And we're discussing the 50th anniversary of the center. So a question to both of you. You both describe the history, what's happening now. How do you answer people who say, hey, we're fourth-wave feminists now. We have a lot of different women's supports out there and available. Why is a women's center in Cambridge today still so very important, Rochelle?
0: Well, I think, again, because it is a place where women can come and Yes, certainly things have changed from the early days. I should say also one of the good things about the center is we own it, so we don't have to rely on a landlord or somebody who owns the building to pressure us to do certain things. We actually own the building, and it has served as the mother of a whole bunch of groups that are very, very important in Boston and throughout the country, really, at this point, the Rape Crisis Center, the Elizabeth Stone House, Transition House, for victims of domestic violence and a whole bunch of other uh, incest survivors, women's community cancer. So why is it relevant today? Again, because of the same model, the grassroots really providing a safe place where women can come and meet other women. Now, with the pandemic, has really shown once again the inequality in family structures it's women who are mostly losing or having to leave their jobs it's women who do the majority of the family uh, the child care in the in the home and making sure that their children are on Zoom for school lessons. So there are still a lot of unmet needs and new needs which have arisen because of the circumstances now and because in some way we've lived in a backlash for the last 50 years. Uh, we had great expectations from the Great Society time of LBJ, that this was the beginning of major social change, and what we found that in many is that in many ways we've either stood still or gone backwards. The center still then provides a place where women can gather and begin to, as Judy has talked about, uh, have a safe space and a space where they can kind of take a breath and maybe talk about some of the needs that they need to do and begin to address them.
1: Do you want to add something, Judy?
5: Well, I was just going to say right now, for example, people can't find things like computers. They can't do job applications. They can't get support. We give out help with transportation. We give food out. So it's a big need now for people that are being overlooked. Other services have dried up. But really, people who come to the Women's Center from other areas of the country, they're like, why don't we have a women's center? You know, like it's an extremely vibrant, extremely important place for people to connect to societies. is a society of isolation to a certain degree. It seems to be a bigger problem now than ever. So I think we really help with that and we help with get people improving their quality of life. Just they have something to look forward to, somebody to connect with daily, you know, if they want. And then housing is a bigger issue. Battered women can no longer stay at a shelter for a month and then find a place to live. They have to stay at the shelter for years because of housing issues. And it just it's just things are really bad. And I don't know that the fourth wave is <laughs> really taking care of any of that.
1: Mm. How would you like to see the center grow in the next 50 years, Judy?
5: Well, one thing that we, we have a very diverse population using the center um, in terms of having a diverse population on the board or in the volunteer corps, that's been more complicated. We now have an IDEA committee that's inclusion, diversity, equity, accountability, and action committee, and they are helping us figure out what we can do with all kinds of things with our mission statement, with our procedures to become more inclusive, and that includes giving stipends to uh, women of color just to be sure that they are a part of decision-making. We wanna make our decision-making process more inclusive. I know we all also want to do more activism so we can hopefully make some changes in the society, not just in helping people in their lives, but I hope we can continue that also. We have an amazing donor has offered to renovate the building, so we are going to be moving to a temporary location while they do that. And the new building will have wheelchair elevators all up and down the floor from the basement to the third floor and accessible bathrooms, which will be so amazing. A lot of women, even women who are not in wheelchairs, have trouble climbing the stairs and getting to the rooms where the meetings are and stuff. Um, and the building needs, <laughs> needs it badly. So, this so is,
1: that's important. Mm-hmm. It
5: is. But I think also just that we be open to um, new ideas and not just, okay, this is the way we did it. We're going to keep doing it like that. Although I love it very much the way it is. <laughs>
1: Rochelle, same question to you. The renovated center, as Judy has said, will bring a lot of physical changes. I wonder if you're thinking as you'll reorient the space, it'll add something else to the whole looking toward the future for the next 50 years.
0: Well, I think that the Women's Center model is something that I'm hoping will serve uh, as a model for women centers in other parts of the country, uh, even within Boston, in other cities and towns within Boston. The grassroots model of really listening to and providing a space where women, as Judy has said, a diverse group of women can come meet and begin to address their needs and develop some action projects to help do that in a new building. It's extremely exciting that we're going to have a state-of-the-art building uh, in which the center's activities can take place. But there's a lot of work to be done just even within Boston in getting the word out. There's, and also learning more about our history. The women's movement is the least documented of any of the social movements. Of the 20th and 21st centuries, there's a lot more to be done. We left on Pearl was just the beginning of trying to uncover that. So it's both uh, getting to learn more about our history, our activist history, having more people learn about that history, and then serving as a model for other women centers in other areas. I think are are two aspects. For example, I mean the uh, founding of the of the women center. Uh, and the way in which community activism and the takeover really merged together um and achieved certain a certain amount of success in terms of affordable housing for the community and creating the physical place of the women's center could be we certainly have enough universities in the area could be something for students to really learn more about and study in addition to volunteering and the volunteers, as Judy has said, have been absolutely critical to the success of the Women's Center. So as a model and as a force for change.
1: One last question to you, Rochelle. Does it seem amazing to you that the organization has survived for 50 years and thrived?
0: Absolutely. And I can't believe I'm 50 years older either.
1: (laughs) Well, happy birthday to the Women's Center. Happy 50th anniversary. And thank you both for joining me.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you, Callie. Thank
1: you very much. Rochelle Ruthchild is one of the founders of the Cambridge Women's Center, its second president, and a producer of the documentary Left on Pearl. Judy Norris is a full-time volunteer and chair of the Cambridge Women's Center's Board of Trustees. Well, that's it for this week's show. We're on the web at GBH.org, news under the radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Wes Martin and engineered by Dave Goodman. Angela Yang is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.